They tried to stop my shine, but I was so They tried to stop my shine, they could only wish, wish. Cause you cannot block a bitch who's about his business. They look at all Craig's done and they wanna dismiss. Still my books be on their man's Amazon wish list. Fucker. <laughs> Happy Memorial Day weekend, everybody. Tokyo boy. Let's go, it's the weekend. Let's go, it's the weekend. Ha, 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 Let's go, it's the weekend. Let's go, it's the weekend. Ha, 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 How y'all doing this week? So glad to be back with you. Hope you had a good week. More importantly, hope you really have plans for this good old Memorial Day weekend. Um, I actually will be working, but I'll be, wherever y'all partying, y'all playing Megan the Stallion, I will be there in spirit. Just think of me, okay? Um, but welcome to Craig's Pop Life, a black gay excursion into pop culture. I'm your host, Craig Seymour. You know me. I've been writing for more than 20 years. In fact, I'm going to share one of my earliest pieces with you a little later. And you can catch up with my stuff on rnbeing.com if you so choose. And you can also check out my books. I'm an author. You can check my books out in print, digital, and audio. Uh, my biography, Luther, the Life and Longing of Luther Vandross, the legend Luther Vandross. Uh, my memoir about being a grad school stripper hoe. All I Could Bear, My Life in the Strip Clubs of Gay Washington, D.C. And then my novel about three generations of black gay men looking for love, Who's Your Daddy? Make you a wonderful Memorial Day read, and you can get it on your, you know, Kindle, whatever, download it, read it on your little trips. And then the forthcoming special, A Critical Meditation on the Life and Artistry of Janet Jackson, which I will be working on this weekend while y'all are partying. Um... Today's show is going to be a little different, um, a little special, because it is Memorial Day weekend. And because of that, and because I'm a D.C. native, Memorial, D Memorial Day weekend always means Black Pride weekend to me. Um, it's also here in Miami, incidentally. But it just, and you know, like um, Philly got April, I think L.A. and um, Chicago got July, New York got August, Atlanta got Labor Day. Uh, in some city I ain't even mentioning, I'm sure they got something. But for a D.C. person, like, growing up in D.C., growing up as a black gay man in D.C., Memorial Day weekend, Black Pride was just so special to me. Um, the main outdoor event, I think this year, I think it's been moved for a while now, because I haven't been, you know, years since I've left D.C., but I think it's at Fort DuPont Park in Southeast. But in my day, it was held at Banneker Field, right across... Um, we're really right in the midst of the Howard, um, the whole Howard campus. And it was just so special to me because those were the areas that I kind of grew up around. So then to come back as a black gay man, but I'll get all into that later, but I'm just saying, um, it was just um, very special. And then when I started writing about music decades ago, one of the first pieces I wrote was um, kind of relating music 
to my feelings about Black Pride. And I thought since nobody's read this thing since 1998, because it's ain't online or anything like that, I thought I would share the piece with you. So without further ado, these are my 1998, my baby gay, baby black gay thoughts on Pride. Y'all, I don't even my reading glasses on. I was going to read y'all nothing. Hold on. Let me, let me give you some bread bowl before I start. Okay. Worthy of Pride. Next to Christmas, Black Pride Day is my favorite day of the year. While I'm always as proud of my gayness as I am of my blackness, as the motto of the D.C. Coalition's of black, Coalition of Black Lesbian, Gays, and Bisexual States, it's nice to have one day to celebrate both at the same time within the black community. As a teenager, I spent so many weekends hanging out around Banneker Field, acting wild with friends at the McDonald's across the street, and being called a punk whenever I accidentally dropped my guard and let myself have too much fun. Because of this, seeing Banneker Field packed each year with black lesbian and gays is so cathartic in a way that no other Pride Day can be. It tells me not only that I've come home, but that someone's turned down the bed. As with every other celebration I partake in, each year I need a soundtrack for Black Pride Weekend a selection of songs to provide context for the weekend's events. Usually, I need a whole crate load of songs. But this year, my lone soundtrack is Jumpin' 2, classics from the disco underground. What sets this collection apart from other classic disco compilations is that it contains several songs that specifically touch on feelings associated with Black Gay Pride. For instance, the set opens with Teddy Pendergrass's You Can't Hide From Yourself, a hard lesson many of, us had, many of us had to learn before we could ever even make it to our first Pride Day. The collection also includes Black Pride party staples from Sylvester and Carl Bean. While most folks know Sylvester from, from hits like Do You Want a Funk and the criminally overplayed You Make Me Feel Mighty Real, over and Over is included on this collection. It's his underground classic, notably because of its gospel-esque breakdown. Midway through the song, the music is stripped bare, leaving little more than syncopated hand claps, joyful tambourines, and Sylvester trading treading soulful melasmas with his extraordinary cadre of background vocalists, including a very prominent Martha Wash. Unquestionably, this is disco at its revivalist best. Also suited for a revival is Carl Bean's anthemic, I Was Born This Way, featuring the simple yet moving chorus, I'm happy, carefree, and gay. I was born this way. The very existence of this song challenges the notion that black culture is especially homophobic. After all, the record was released in 1979 by the preeminent Black-owned record label of the time, Motown. Even with all these selections, the song getting the most repeats on my CD player is Inner Life's 1982 Last Days of Disco Classic, Moment of My Life. Over a thumping piano riff, Legendary vocalist Jocelyn Brown spins a funky self-empowerment tale which takes her from living a life that felt like pouring rain to making the sound resounding re declaration, this is the end of tearing my life apart. 
On the surface, the song is about finding a romantic lover. But the lyrics can easily be interpreted as finding, embracing, and loving yourself. Which, after all, is the ultimate meaning of pride. So, y'all, that's Craig, 1988 vintage, 1998 vintage Craig. Um, sorry, I messed up a few words, old Craig, but you'll forgive me because you, you're still here. So just be thankful for that with young ass. Anyway, um, so the, like I said, those are my early, my baby black gay pride thoughts. And as for my current feelings on pride, increasingly for me, pride is about legacy and responsibility. And what I mean by that is that, um, you know, I've just been thinking, I know you all probably heard, if you've been a long-time listener of the podcast, you probably heard that show where I shared that conversation between myself and Essex um, Hempel, the poet, my friend, um, talking about Paris is burning. And I just, you know, just keep thinking of folks like Essex, folks like Marlon Riggs, folks like um, Joseph Beam, and just folks that really created this cultural identity this black gay culture identity um, that many of us live and celebrate today. Because the thing that I keep thinking, and I think this all the time on social media when I see people say, just, um, I don't want to say stupid, because it's not stupid, but just, I sometimes think that people don't really understand where this whole black gay-ish came from. That, like, it wasn't like, just, you know, political, social, cultural identities don't just occur in the natural world. You know what I mean? They just don't happen. People have to forge these identities. People have to construct these identities through the lives they live, the things they celebrate, what they fight for, and the art they create. So we, in using those identities, we really do have to pay homage to those who came before us, to those who did that work. And, you know, in terms of being a black gay man, I think it often gets lost that this was a social, cultural, and political identity that was forged in the late 70s, 80s, and 90s, in part as a response to the gay movement that wanted us to subsume our blackness and black cultural organizations that treated us as outsiders. That's what it is. That is why um, folks of my generation call ourselves black gay men. So that's why like sometimes when I hear people refer to themselves as gay black men, especially younger um, guys, well, first of all, yes, I get a, a tense up, like, oof, you know, but I just, more than anything, I'm just trying, I just really want to understand, like, where is that coming from? Is that from a politic that I don't know about? Y'all, is there a new gay black movement or something like that? I feel it's my resp- I, I, I want to ask those questions, just be in communication with the other generation, just be in communication with my brothers. But at the same time, I feel like I have to speak up on behalf of my brothers who are not here because they're not here to talk about why it was so important to call ourselves black gay men back in the day. So I feel like I'm going to have to be the loud bitch. Do you know what I mean? Like, because they ain't here to talk. So I'm still here. I'm going to be the loud bitch and talk about the history. And, you know, I was having a conversation with somebody on Twitter, and they were like, well, who decided we have to be black gay men? And I was like, you know, well, I didn't even say it because I wasn't even trying to argue. But in my head, in my the folder of draft tweets in my brain, I was just kind of like, you know, you can call yourself a black gay man or a gay black man. 
don't really give a fuck. But by doing that, realize that you are either respecting a legacy that people fought and died for, or you're choosing to deny it and to, you know, try to make your own lane and all that kind of stuff. Do you. But I'm just trying to just be real about um, about the choice. So that's where I am about that. Because, you know, like I said, I see a lot of that gay black stuff um, coming around, but I don't really see people... Um, you know, like I said, I don't see a politic to it or nobody's really given me a reason to um, understand why that's done. So I'm going to spend a little bit of my time today just kind of just going, I mean, just, you know, for the record, going over just the importance of the black gay identity and just how we got here, you know, where it came from, um, because I think that's important and where it came from and the people that help bring it into being. And just to put a little bit of the context, this is a context of sort of like what the gay movement was like and what forces in the black community were saying around like the late um, 70s. This This is a quote by um, a black gay writer, Craig Harris, that talked about his experience with um, sort of the mainstream white gay movement at the time. And he said, The feelings of violation experienced by many gay white men when encountering heterosexist discrimination are largely due to an innate belief that, as white men, their civil liberties are a guaranteed birthright. This unconscious illusion of supremacy promotes racism and misogyny rather than eliciting empathy for victims of discrimination based on race and sex. So, he saw he wasn't falling for the okie doke. He saw what the limitations of the gay movement and what they, they were going for. And he knew that if it was just a bunch of entitled white men, it was never going to get around to addressing the issues of his black ass. You know what I mean? So he knew, as others did, that they needed to go for self. And by the same token, even in supportive aspects of the black community, um, particularly not so much the black church, to be honest with you, but particularly um, black political organizations, it was kind of like they were seeing gays as something separate, but they weren't really conceiving of gay people as um, being in their midst, they're being black gay people. Because like um, Huey Newton of the Black Panthers, he wrote this piece a letter from Huey to the revolutionary brothers and sisters about the women's liberation and gay liberation movement. He wrote, homosexuals are not enemies of the people. Well, that's good as fuck to hear, right? But it's almost as if he can't conceive that someone could simultaneously be as invested, mind, body, and soul, in both the black power movement and the gay liberation movement. So it was this in this climate that um, the black gay identity began to take shape. And I want to just read something from um, Joseph Beam's In the Life, a black gay anthology that really kind of clearly states this, um, why this was so important to assert a black gay identity even to other black people. He says, 
As black gay men, we have always existed in the African-American community. We have been ministers, hairdressers, entertainers, sales clerks, civil rights activists, teachers, playwrights, trash collectors, dancers, government officials, choir masters, and dishwashers. You name it, we've done it, most often with scant recognition. We have mediated family disputes, cared for and reared our siblings, and housed our sick. We have performed many and varied important roles within our community. Together, we are creating and naming a new community. I'm going to read that again. Together, we are creating and naming a new community while extending a hand to the one from which we've come. We are bringing into the light the lives which we have led in the shadows. So that's what the fuck being a black gay man is about. Okay? Um, so, you know, again, I think a lot of this is just that the culture, this history has just been lost. That just people just don't know what it is. So I just want to go through and just some briefly, you know, not in no boring way. This ain't no Ken Burns document. Not some Ken Burns documentary is good, so let me not just Ken Burns. But you know what I'm saying? I'm not trying to give y'all a history lesson. I know y'all want to get your party on Memorial Day. I'm with you. I just want to take a little bit of time to just, you know, talk a little bit about the people that helped us get here to the party that ain't here to party with us. Maybe we can take a second to think about what they've done and to say their names. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Um, but again, let me get a good drink of this good Red Bull because my mouth's getting dry. So going back, um, and the reason for that, this is a, another quote that I just love. This is um, from a writer, black gay writer named Melvin Dixon. And he said these words to um, a gay writers conference in March of 1992, and he was sick for AIDS at the time. And he talked about how vulnerable we are as black gay men to the disposal and erasure of our lives. I'm going to read that again. Okay. He talked about how vulnerable we are as black gay men to the disposal and erasure of our lives. And then he said to the audience, I may not be there for the development of gay literary history, but I'll be somewhere listening for my name. You then are charged with the charged by the possibility of your good health, by the broadness of your vision to remember us. So those were his words to the outright Gay um, Literary Festival in March of 1992, and by October of that year, sadly, he was gone. So that's what this is. It's an act of remembering and saying names. And we're going to start this little history trip um, with something a lot of people don't know about, um, with Adrian Stanford's 1997 poetry collection, Black and Queer. It's almost impossible to find now, but it was a poetry collection that was the first to really start putting these things together. And let me understand, a lot of y'all are going to be going, well, what about James Baldwin? Well, what about James Baldwin? Understand that James Baldwin was very much a singular figure that kind of revolved outside of um, 
these kind of gay circles. He wrote Giovanni's Room, of course, and that's a, you know, seminal text. Giovanni's Room is about two white guys. Okay, so it wasn't until just above my head that he started writing about um, black gay people. And he always was a little standoffish against being, because I think he didn't want his whole literary history to be reduced to just being gay or whatever it was, whatever reasons people have for, you know, I, I don't judge anybody for that. But all I'm saying is that we are talking, what I'm talking about and the men I'm talking about are men that took that step to say, I'm gay, and then do a cultural identity around that, to stand up within the Black community and say, I'm gay. So that's why the tradition starts much later. That's why we don't necessarily, that's why it really doesn't go that far back, that it is a fairly um, young history, and it's made all the more tragic that so many people in this kind of young movement are no longer here. Uh, but, you know, stuff really started go get going in 1978. Now, I was 10 years old in D.C., and my ass was just basically obsessed with Shaka's first solo album. You know, it hit. Everybody's wondering, can she do it? Can she do it? Can she? Yes, she could. Yes, she did. Um, I was obsessed with The Brides of Funkenstein. I played that album over and over and over again. And Princess Soft and Wet. But more importantly, in other D.C. happenings, the D.C. Coalition of Black Gays was founded. And by the next year, by 1979, it became a chapter of the larger National Coalition of Black, Lesbian, and Gays, which also had chapters in Philadelphia, Detroit, and Chicago. There was a whole lot of movement of Black gay men getting together to talk about our shared issues and to talk about you know, the racism that we're experiencing in the um, gay community and issues that we're having within the black community. There were conversations of like brothers in Harlem and Brooklyn and stuff were meeting at the Oscar Wilde bookshop in New York and at the Lesbian and Gay Community um, Services Center in the village. And then 1986 was a really big year. That was when the Other Countries Collective was created to develop and nurture and spread Black gay voices. And from the other country collectives, we got people like poet Asado Saint, who put out a number of his own books and anthologies, and the other country's collective also put out a bunch of um, anthologies. But 1986 was really, really a big year because it was the year that Joseph Bean's um, In the Life, a Black gay anthology, was published. And significantly in this, you know, it was hard, again, to get public figures, people that were already established out there, to be associated with something that was so blatantly black and gay. But Sylvester was a real one, and he ain't mind. So Sylvester wrote the foreword to In the Life. And he wrote, being first black and then gay, these words express things that I have experienced things found in the black culture that are unknown to many. At times, I cried just remembering how hard it is to be both black and gay during these truly difficult times. But here we are, still proud and living with a culture of our own, all our own, rather. So Sylvester knew what was up. Um, unfortunately, this was in 1980. 86, and Sylvester passed in 1988. Um, 
But the story behind In the Life was interesting. Beam was working at a um, bookstore called Giovanni's Room in Philly. I don't know. I think it reopened or something like that. But it used to really be the hot spot in um, for gay life in Philly. And he was inspired by um, black lesbian writers because he couldn't find other black gay writers to inspire him. And he really felt left out of all the white gay fiction that was being put out all the time. So he said, he was just tired of it. He was like, okay, well, let me read stuff by black women, black lesbians. Maybe that will be closer to my experience than this white gay fiction I keep getting. So he was really um, inspired by that. And um, he that's when he got the idea to do an anthology of writings by black gay men. So he sent out, you know, getting submissions and all that kind of stuff. And in the process of getting um, manuscript submissions, he met Essex, Essex Temple, from D.C. And they really had a deep connection. Because you can imagine if Joe's up there in Philly feeling completely detached from the community, uh, probably not, I, I mean, I don't even know, I don't know how much of a black gay community there was in Philly, but I know before the internet, even if you had something local going on, you could still feel kind of detached from the world. That doesn't really happen so much now in the internet days, but he connected with Essex, you know, in DC and that I'm sure just, just that connection, knowing somebody here and, you know, somebody's like me here and it's kind of a movement. I'm sure that that was, a, um, you know, that was a really good feeling. And initially, Joe had wanted a romantic thang-thang with Essex. But Essex told him, Joe, that is not for us. Instead, they became really great friends. Um, and if you read some of their letters and stuff, Joe was really prone to deep depression. And he was really depressed because he would feel like, here, I'm putting together this anthology for Black gay men. I'm working for all you know, the Black gay community. I'm finding all these black gay writers, but I can't find one damn man to love. And he would get really down and um, really lonely about that, understandably. And this is what Essex wrote to him once after he had written a letter like that, complaining, after Joe had written a letter um, like that to Essex, kind of complaining about his lack of finding a love life. He wrote, Joe, quite frankly, I love you for the man you are which is why I believe our friendship will be forever. A friendship tied to concerns that, when galvanized, will help us all. Please stay well in spirit and believe love will come to you and make you stronger. But be strong now while it seems love is not near. And please know, we're brothers. I think that's... that's I mean, it almost brings tears to my eyes, you know, thinking that there's so many levels to it. I mean, just in terms of that, be strong now, because he knew not only that we as a community needed Joe, but Joe needed to do what he needed to do, because that was his purpose. And in a lot of ways, that was bigger than love. But the other thing about that is there was also this thing going on for black gay men that were more associated with the white gay community, whereas like black men didn't always recognize other black men 
in a white gay space. Like if you were in a white gay club and maybe you were dating Miss Blue-Eyed Thang, Thang, and had it on your arm and somebody else was, you know, dating another white boy and both y'all had white boys, y'all wouldn't necessarily look at each other. Do you know what I mean? Or even if y'all didn't have white boys in your arm, if you were in a white space and you were just looking for something, you might not look at each other. Okay, because of the context. So that's why um, the line in the um, documentary, which I'll talk about later, Black Men Loving Black Men, is the revolutionary act. When, when brothers were getting together to form this black gay identity, it wasn't just for fucking. It was also about brotherhood and support and loving each other. And I think that's expressed so well in this um, letter from Essex to Joe. So speaking of Tongues Untied, so Tongues Untied came out in 1989. And that was by filmmaker Marlon Riggs, another name to remember. And he was inspired by In the Life um, to do the documentary that basically just chronicles a lot of different aspects of black gay life. So, um, and it would really raise black gay visibility in kind of a good and bad way because it was funded partially by the NEA. It became the center of a Republican fight over budgeting for the National Endowment of Arts. So at the time, you'd hear Jesse Helms, um, you know, just railing against this tongues untied, this tongues untied. And the height of irony is that they made an ad about Tongues Untied, talking about how horrible Tongues Untied was and what it's going to do for the children and stuff. Same thing they'd be talking about with Arthur's teacher marrying his man and stuff like that. But the only clips they used from Tongues Untied were like a very brief part that features white gay men dancing in the Castro. And it's kind of put in the film to contrast, you know, to show the scene that black gay men weren't really a part of. But yet when they were trying to you make a shock attack ad about it, that's the footage they use. So it was weird that even in this railing against a black gay production, black gay men were erased. But it did have a lot of visibility because it was actually broadcast on PBS. So people all over the country, they got to hear voices like Essex. Essex is in the film and his poetry is included in the film. They got to see many different perspectives on black experience. They have some trans people in the, some transgender people in the film. And they even got to see Voguing. And this was one year before Paris is Burning, but Willie Ninja is in the film cutting it up and all these people Voguing and talking about how Voguing also is kind of region-specific, how certain cities have balls and stuff like that, but other cities don't. So it, it was very interesting. Um, and Tongues Untied is available on Vimeo to rent 48 hours for $2.99. So that's a real cheap little, and it's only 55 minutes. So it might be less time than this podcast. So it's a real cheap and quick kind of thing to really get a sense of what the history is like. And in 1989, there was also um, Looking for Langston by Isaac Julian from Britain. And that was kind of a poetic search for, you know, now that this black gay identity was established, it, there was kind of this cultural search for forefathers, you know. So it's kind of looking out to Langston Hughes to try to see, was there a queer sensibility, a black gay sensibility in his work? And then trying to connect that to the work of contemporary poets like Essex, who was also in the film. Um, 
Now, this was, like I said, 1989, and sadly, by this time, and all this cultural activity was going, some of it inspired by Joe Beam's In the Life, Joe Beam had died, and um, he had never told anyone that he was, um, that he had AIDS, even though, you know, he, there's writing about that in, in the life, and, you know, he was very open about other aspects of his life. He did not tell anybody he had AIDS, and he was actually found dead and decomposing in his Philadelphia apartment in 1988. So that was tragic, and at the time, Joe had been working on a follow-up anthology to end the life. So a lot of brothers had submitted to this. It was in the works. It was under a book contract and everything like that, and really kind of talking about the advancements you know, just sort of like advancing the conversation from in the life. And all of a sudden, it just looked like that project was going nowhere, that that had died with um, Joe. But Essex, his good friend, picked up the baton, um, you know, and finished, basically finished the book for him. And what was really, what's extraordinary about that is that he had the cooperation of, um, Joe's family, and at one point he even moved in with them in order to complete the book. He writes about this. He said, When I finally realized I would need to finish this anthology in Philadelphia at the source of its completion, Mr. and Mrs. Beam kindly allowed me to stay at their home, where I worked without interruption except for the occasional plates of Mr. Beam's delicious fried chicken and conversations with Mrs. Beam about Joe. Brother to Brother, Homosexuality, Black Life, and other topics of interest and concern to us both. Their participation in this project makes it a very special family affair and significant in the context of Black gay men and our relationships to our families. It is evidence that we can love, accept, and support one another in our constructions of family. It's an effort that cannot be left out of the survival, survival strategies of the African-American community, for to do so is to beckon cultural destruction. So I just thought that was wonderful, because again, you know, even today we're plagued with these um, myths that black people are more homophobic than white people, something that's never been proved, played out statistically, but you see that coming up in narratives about like, oh, black people hate Pete Buttigieg and all this kind of stuff. Um, people always want to throw that on us. They want to throw their pathologies on us. So that's just a wonderful example of um, showing a black family supporting the work of their black gay son after his death by helping another black gay man complete the work. Um, so I thought that's just amazing. And that ended up coming out in 1991. Uh, that's called Brother to Brother, New Writings by Black Gay Men. And that was just around the time. It was just before that book came out. That's when I first met Essex. Um, he was still working on the book when I met him in D.C. Um, and in the introduction, also in the, in the introduction, when he... Um, discusses so the importance of um, Joe's family and helping with the book. He also talks about how informing the black gay identity, it's as much a cultural movement as it is about politics. He writes, 
Our immediate task as black gay men creating our own literary tradition is to work diligently and to utilize honesty and discipline as our allies. If we commit ourselves to strive for excellence and nothing less, we will create the evidence of being powerful enough to transform the very nature of our existence. And see, again, that's why I get so tight when people don't acknowledge the legacy of these men, because this was not just a bunch of writers just writing for the sake of writing just to express themselves. This is somebody that is trying to transform the very nature of our Black gay existence. That's how deep it was. That's how serious it was. That's how serious they were about it. And I think we owe it to them to respect the things that they created um, with that amount of purpose and seriousness. Not to say that you have to, you know, adopt everything that they said or anything like that. And things change with time, and I completely understand. But I feel you first need to know the history and grapple with the history and then decide what you're going to do. You know what I mean? Like, learn the directions of how to get somewhere. Somebody might tell you a shortcut. It might be a good shortcut. It might be a bad shortcut. But whatever, that's your decision. That's your life. But, um, you know, don't disregard what these brothers have done. Don't try to at least dip your toe into the works of what these brothers have done before you dismiss it. And incidentally, 1991, when Brother Brother was out, that was also the same year that Elin Harris first self-published Invisible Life. And then three years later, 1994, James Earl Hardy, who was inspired by In the Life when he picked up In the Life and felt like, wow, there really is something like a black gay community, then he later published um, his long-running b-boy blues series, but that the first one was out in 1994. Now, at this point, if you're wondering what happened to all this cultural activity, all this stuff was going on, and it seems kind of quiet now, right? I mean, there's a lot of stuff going, much more, you know, black gay stuff going on the mainstream, and then we have wonderful things like Noah's Ark and just, you know, Pose and Moonlight, and so much stuff has gone on. It's a little quiet on the writing front now, but um, there was a long gap in that. And basically, I mean, it really just comes down to people died. I mean, people just died. And, um, you know, that just kind of, um, that was the, you know, people drove this, were driving this car, getting there, and then there was nobody to really drive the car. I know from my perspective, um, I was still very young and still very much a new writer then, so I didn't necessarily, I was, what I was doing a lot of times was reviewing a lot of um, the works that people were putting out, a lot of the anthologies that came out and everything that I was reviewing, that, and I was very much in conversation with the writers, but I wasn't necessarily at the place where I could just go out and, um, you know, and, and, and write something that would be, have been culturally significant at the time. And Essex struggled with AIDS, and he we even wrote about that powerfully because um, he was always sort of looking at the intersections of race, sexuality, and class. And this is what he wrote about um, sort of his, his struggle at one point. He says, Some of my T-cells I am without are not here through my own fault. I didn't lose all of them foolishly, 
and I didn't lose all of them erotically. Some of the missing T-cells were lost to racism, a well-known transmittable disease. Some were lost to poverty, because there was no money to do something about the plumbing before the pipes burst and the room flooded. Homophobia killed quite a few, but so did my rage and my pointed furies. So did the wars at home, and the so did the wars at home and the wars within. So did the drugs I took to keep calm, cool, collected. Actually, there are T cells scattered all about me at doorways where I was denied entrance because I was a faggot or a nigga or too poor or too black. And Essex passed um, in... God, I wanted to have that written down. I just want to make sure I get it right. Try to hold on, because I am not messing up this date after I've been talking about this man the whole time. Okay, yeah, I thought it was 1995. Essex died in 1995, November 4th, 1995. And um, an ethnic studies professor, Darius Bust, who has a really good book out that I'll talk about later, Bost, rather, he wrote that Essex's death marked the end of the black gay renaissance. And I think that's really true. I think the tradition of this community of men, Joe, you know, Essex from the East Coast, Marlon from the West Coast, this, you know, Isaac Julian from overseas, this community of black gay men that got together at a certain cultural moment to forge this identity and create these works, I do think that that just basically kind of, um, it, it did die out. Like I said, from my perspective, you know, it really took me, so that was 95. I mean, it took me until about 1998 for me to start writing and really starting to put myself out there in the, in the world. And, of course, that was without men, mentors and it was without being able to submit to anth- new anthologies like Brother to Brother in the Life because those just weren't coming. And so I did most of my work within the context of music reviewing. Definitely because I love music, but it was also because that was a lane that I could see a future in, whereas the um, black gay cultural writing lane, that just wasn't, that just didn't exist. So what did I do? Like, if I had to review an album, I talked about black pride in reviewing the album, you know, and that's why what my first book was on Luther Vandross, you know what I mean? So you see the, um, I talk about being, um, you know, black and gay in my memoir, All Like a Bear. So it's like, I definitely see myself in the spirit of creating, you know, I see myself as creating in the spirit of these brothers. So that's basically just what I wanted to speak on. It was on my spirit. And I just, you know, was thinking about Memorial Day and what it meant to me. And I have a lot of happy memories. And I just, like I said, I, I feel now it's about legacy and responsibility. And my responsibility, like I said, is to be a loud bitch and to talk about some of these issues and to make sure as many people that hear my voice know these names and know this history. And so I hope I've done that 
um, today. And in addition to saying their names, I can let you know where you can find some of the work that I've talked about. Um, I'm going to put links on craigspoplife.com. And then also, um, I got myself a little Amazon store, y'all. They fucked around and gave me a store. So if you go to, um, it's fairly easy to find. I'm, again, I'll put it on the craigspoplife.com site, but it's actually amazon.com slash shop slash craigspoplife. And that's where I'll put all the books um, like Invisible Life and um, the, in, Invisible Life and In the Life and Brother to Brother and B-Boy Blues and all of that. And also, I really wanted to just... Um, do a special shout out to two books that I really leaned on, um, kind of putting this podcast together, just um, help me remember things. Hold Tight Gently, Michael Callan, Essex Temple, and The Battlefield of AIDS by Martin Duberman, and then Evidence of Being by Evidence of Being, The Black Gay Cultural Renaissance and the Politics of Violence by Darius Bost. So those are two works. If you really are trying to get your history on, you really want to um try to put these pieces together and then see how it connects. Those are books that I definitely um, recommend. And, you know, like I said, it's a store. It's not a wish list for me. This is Craig's Pop Life, not only fans, okay? So the other stuff y'all will see if you go to Amazon.com slash shop slash Craig's Pop Life is basically I've made lists of just stuff that people generally ask me about, you know, so that it's always there because every time somebody asks me about some these questions, I have to kind of think about it and sometimes I miss things and stuff. So I, 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 it really is helpful to have these lists. So in addition to finding... Those books that I've talked about, you will also find my favorite writing tools, like physically what I use to write with, my podcast tools, like what I am talking on right now, uh, my favorite books on the writing and publishing process, my favorite books about music. People ask often ask me, you know, what books influence you? What books about music, you know, influence your writing, influence your thinking? It's all right there. My favorite gay novels. Um... And most importantly, especially because, you know, prime shipping, if y'all are quick, you might be able to get you some spice for the weekend, weekend barbecue or something. My favorite hot sauces are all on Amazon.com slash shop slash Craig's Pop Life. So I hope you enjoy those things and check them out. I want to thank you again very much for listening to this special edition, this little detour from what we regularly do. But like I said, it was just... um kind of it was on my spirit so I felt like I had to do it so uh, another thing like if you could just do me a favor and I know I say it all the time and I know people both you know I would ignore it too or whatever but just it is very important um if you could just please 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 take a moment to rate the podcast because that helps me show up in searches because like right now if you search black gay in the Amazon podcast I don't even come up because I don't have enough ratings and I don't have enough subs subscribers. So if you plead, plead, like I have, and I know what my listenership is, and I know that the ratings and the subscribers are much less than the listenership. So if you could please take a moment to rate and subscribe so that a brother comes up, if if somebody comes to Amazon and says, I mean, comes to um, iTunes and says, look, I want to hear a good gay, black gay podcast. Let me put in black gay, that my black gay ass will actually show up. I would appreciate it. And until next week, as we always do at this time, be cool, be kind, 
be creative. And in the words of my fave, you know who it is. Be your damn self. <laughs> okay, I love y'all. Have a great weekend, and I'll see you next week. Bye.